Qasem Soleimani was one of the most powerful figures in the Middle East. With close links to a network of paramilitary groups that stretches from Syria to Yemen. And tonight, we are learning a top Iranian commander was killed in a missile strike. Welcome to episode 27 of the Podcast. My guest today is Arash Azizi, an Iranian journalist, author, and PhD candidate at NYU, not for long. Uh, Azizi writes extensively on various Iran-related topics, and in this episode, we'll be discussing his book, The Shadow Commander Soleimani, uh, the U.S. and Iran's uh, global uh, ambitions. Uh, the book looks at the life and influence of uh, General Qasem Soleimani, the former commander of the Quds Force, uh, one of the strongest uh, tentacles of Iran's uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, aka the IRGC. And in so doing, Azizi provides insights into Soleimani's life uh, and overall Iranian history and foreign policy um, very thoroughly. And I'm pleased to finally have him on the podcast. Welcome, Arash. Hello, it's great to be with you, Nasser. Thank you for having me. Of course, welcome. Um, so what inspired you to write a book specifically about General Qasem Soleimani and his role as the shadow commander? Uh, I was interested in Soleimani and working on him, researching him for a long time as a journalist. I used to be a journalist uh, before entering academia. Um, and what really was specifically interesting um, in him for me was his ability to um, to gather the support, support and loyalty of, of many people in the Arab world. Uh, now, the relationship between Iran and the Arab world, as you know, uh, has sort of always been rocky, both culturally. Um, there's actually a big, you can see there's a big wall of separation between us, ironically, that, that there is, there's very little people to people. Link. Ironically, as someone who had always promoted, you know, said literary and cultural and sort of progressive political in you know, the Arab world, there's something ironic that the bad guys, so to speak, um, the Iranian regime, well, had uh, had been able to make these extensive links, and not a lot of it on a sectarian basis, but but some of it also beyond that. So that that was, uh, you know, you can say basically Soleimani is a fascinating case of transnationalism. Um, of it, after all, not very common to have an army um, led by a country which includes many people from many different uh, nations. Um, no, of course, there are transnational armies that have always been. Uh, but in this case, you know, they were very serious, like tens of thousands of Afghans, Pakistanis, um, Iraqis, of course, Syrians, um, uh, and in some more indirect ways, uh, uh, Lebanese and uh, Palestinians, who, you know, all gathered this force under this one man who had become this sort of uh, the regional uh, icon. So that's that's why I was very interested uh, in working on him and researching him. Um, but when he was killed uh, by uh, the United States in in 2020, uh, the publisher that I had sort of spoken about this before basically gave me sort of a final ultimatum and said, you know, if you want to write this book, now is the time. Um, and so I wrote it. And. Interesting was the kind of uh, research he conducted for the book. So how were you able to carry that out? Especially that you interviewed uh, his driver. So how was that process like? You know, in Iran, there is a very, um, there's a very fertile media scene. So there are, you know, of course, there's a lot of press oppression and there's very little press freedom. But nevertheless, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of media outlets, now a lot of the websites. 
lot of them just copy off each other. But at any rate, their website, um, and they interview people. And there's a lot of them more on the conservative side of things, and they interview people. That, um, so at the, the media culture in Iran is still is that you call someone on the phone, and you start speaking, and they usually start speaking back, right? So that's how if you see many diaspora journalists interview many um, sort of important figures. Uh, um, so it's basically once you get the phone number, um, it's all about how you, uh, you know, it's all about how you manage that conversation. I mean, if you get, if you can get someone on the phone, so I was able to get that gentleman on the phone um, who uh, used to drive so money in the years of the war, um, and after it was one of the one of the main people who did that. And it was clear, and my questions were not hostile. Were, uh, and, you know, he also wasn't telling me, of course, any state secrets or anything. He was just sort of um, talking personally about his relationship, whatever I've included in the book. Um, so he spoke. Also, I should say that around the time of Soleimani's killing, there were so many different things coming out in Persian about Soleimani, about his life. So many. Every newspaper in Iran had a sort of a special issue dedicated to it. So I guess they were used to getting these calls and, and speaking about it. So now... You know, obviously, he had no way of knowing what. I mean, I did. I didn't lie or anything. I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm Azizi, but Azizi is a very common name. So they said, so I'm Azizi. I'm trying to write out some money. If you would speak your memoirs, and uh, he, uh, he did graciously share. So, um, and same with the many other figures that I've spoken. So of course, some of the people, let's say the IRGSU folks involved in various operations. I mean, that was harder because they. It's, it's, these are not the people who have a phone number that you just call. Um, but, you know, I had my ways uh, to different contacts in the region and, and in Iran itself. And the motivation of a lot of them to speak to someone like me, I think it's that a lot of times they, you know, this is happens when something is a bit hush-hush and Iran's intervention in the Arab world is a bit wink and hush-hush sometimes in its own ways. I mean, much less now. But a lot of details are the hush-hush. They also feel like they're not being, uh, you know, they're not being valued, and their their contributions are basically forgotten. So that usually gives them a good uh, uh, initiative to speak. And of course, then when they're speaking, sometimes they let in. They 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 don't intend to say anything that's well, classified, but they let in even in in uh, in the middle of a conversation or in tone. They 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 you know let you in and and reveal some stuff that I hope um, have been useful. Um, in the book and uh, what challenges did you face while writing the book um, besides not being there physically in Iran and I would assume that the amount of propaganda that you had to go through was immense so how did you come to it and how did you classify it accordingly yeah that's a very good question um yeah so not being able to go there was obviously an impediment um although I had the uh, benefit of the fact that my mother is from Herman um, where Soleimani is from, the province that Soleimani is from. And um, so she knew a lot of people there. Um, and, you know, so they have a lot of family links there. So I could speak to a lot of people who were from there. Um, in terms of propaganda, it's interesting because there's a lot of propaganda for Soleimani, a lot of propaganda against Soleimani also. I mean, this sort of Syrian opposition uh, channels that I tried to read, I mean, you know, they have a stuff that are obviously, so a lot of them are, you know, they painted him as the actual devil. You know, they said he basically they said things that clearly sort of they could, sort of couldn't have been true, um, or there was no evidence for them. Um, so so there was so there, there was a lot there was a lot of propaganda both 
for him and against him. That is basically not true. My the way I cut through this, I think. I mean, I'm interested to know what happened. Number one, that's a bit, you know, bit basic empiricist um, sort of goal to know what happened, and then you know, obviously, I have my own interpretation, right? But first of all, it's to establish what happened, and I feel like when you look at every all of the information out there, actually, the basics of what happened to a large degree becomes clear because. When you look at all the propaganda for and against, you're like, okay, when they're converged, that they do actually, you know, they do actually agree on some stuff, right? On on what basically happened, like did Soleimani go to Tuz Hormato or not, uh, right? Um, so Tuz Hormato is the little Turkmen village in Iraq that Soleimani parachuted because, okay, everybody is saying he went there on all sides, right? So um, it's it's quite likely that he did. And then, you know, I'm on the conservative side basically, so I don't publish something um, uh, unless I'm kind of more on the short side. Of course, you can never be 100% sure of anything. So to give you an example, um, I did write that Soleimani went to Tuz Hormato. I did write that he went to Lebanon twice during the war with Hezbollah-Israel war of 2006 uh, because they sounded plausible, basically, with, on the balance of evidence. I did write, revealed for the first time in the book, that uh, Soleimani ordered the killing um, of Hawi, president of Yemen, because again, on balance of evidence, they, it sounded like, um, it, it, you know, it, it sounded like quite likely. Um, and I didn't have any reason to think the sources that were telling me in the urgency were, were lying about this. But it didn't include, for example, his claim that he had gone to Gaza, right? Now, a lot of his supporters say he went to Gaza, you know, back and forth. Didn't it didn't make sense to me, right? It's just too dangerous. And so Nemani actually knew his right is too well to, uh, um, to sort of risk himself like that by going in their backyard. Um, so, you know, so that's basically, that's basically how I'll, uh, how I'll, uh, I determine uh, what to put in and what, what not to put in. But could you sort of like narrate his, his story briefly to give like a kind of like an outline to the people, to listeners, people that might not know who you're talking about, the karate kid, and how he rose through the ranks to becoming one of Khomeini's like loyal soldiers. Well, they gotta read the book, but uh, <laughs> but I use the potted version here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Soleimani was. I mean, it's it's also interesting because I really I think as a biographer, the first question every biographer has is, um, it kind of brings into question the whole purpose of biography in a way. Um, uh, is. Should you be interested in one person? Why should you be interested in one person, right? Because why not just write about Iran's intervention in the Arab world and you start in whenever you want to start, but not with someone birthed in the 1950s. Like, why have all those things write about the Shah, write about the land reform, write about all that that I do? But they, I am a big fan of the genre of biography because I believe people make history. Um, now, history makes us. But we also make history. And I think it's this interaction that's important. So Soleimani was a was a boy from a humble area in the Kerman province in the south of Iran. In fact, he was about 200 kilometers from the provincial center. He was in this uh, little place, Anat Malek. Um, and, uh, you know, so so he was born in this in this little place, and like like many others, in his youth, the Iranian Revolution of 1979 happened. So you know, given the pilot version, um, so he was he was a young man when the young the Revolution of 1979 happened in Iran and changed everything over to the monarchical government, 
um, brought a new Islamic Republic, and he was part of the generation of um, millions of Iranians who really used this revolution and the war with Iraq that ensued. So a year after the revolution in 1980, Saddam Hussein's Iraq attacked Iran, and the eight-year war uh, started. Um, so the Islamic Republic really built it up through this war, and it did so primarily by uh, by building this militia that you also mentioned in your introduction, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC. So Soleimani, um, he was, before the revolution, he was, yes, he was so well, he was into karate, he was kind of a gym rat, um, I think it's the term. Um, he did Iranian athletic sports, and that's why actually, when he first wanted to join IRGC, they rejected him. Because he sort of, you know, he didn't look like a revolutionary. He had like, you know, he looked like a tough boy and he had a, 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 a really big muscles. But so he had like um, very, what do you say, like tight shirts and, you know, uh, his hair was up. Uh, didn't look like someone who would, didn't like a good Muslim boy who was going to join uh, the, the Revolutionary Guard. But they allowed him after a while and just to the day he was killed in January 3rd of 2020. And he never left the RGC. So he dedicated his life to this militia whose purpose was, you know, it's a very particular militia whose purpose was not to serve Iran. I mean, that they had a discussion, should we put Iran in the name of the organization? And they decided against it. Sort of a very remarkable fact because they decided that, no, this should be a Islamic uh, guard corps and it should be dedicated to what they consider to be a spread of Islam and Islamic revolution. Um, but and also, after the death of the founding supreme leader of the uh, revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, who is in power now even, um, that's in 1989, and then IRGC became really a, a personal Praetorian guard even for Khomeini to, to spread his power. And I explain all this stuff in the book. But so the story of the book is how uh, some, a you know, a boy from a, very marginal area of Iran goes to become a global celebrity. And he, he did so by years of war in Iraq, of how he rose as a commander, um, and how in the last couple of decades of his life, he became tasked with this project that Iran had, which was to organize um, like-minded militias in the region, um, mostly in the Arab world, and to organize them together in this massive army that they basically, um, you know, they call axis of resistance. These are forces that are united on their opposition to the United States and opposition to Israel, and not just opposition, really, sort of a, um, you know, annihilatory, if you take toward Israel. Um, and, uh, and of course, the fact that Iran did this um, access in recent years found a very unfortunate um, Reality, which was because Iran is a, is a Shia state, obviously, um, this axis of resistance also became heavily sectarian. Um, and actually, in a way, uh, so let me sum it up like this: This book tells two stories, really. One is the story of how a young boy from uh, from a marginal place becomes a global celebrity through through, through the military, um, and is able to organize tens of thousands of uh, men in other countries to uh, convince them to. To die for his ideas, basically, because that's what organizing an army is. The other is the story of how, of how a revolution that had universal kind of ambitions in '79 and it really wanted to change the world in whatever way, um, really descended into a quagmire of the, um, 
you know, ugly realities of sectarianism in our region. I mean, Shia is killing Sunnis and Sunnis killing Shias. Now, I don't think you can ever reduce the Quds force uh, to that. And I tried to explain that. After all, there are, there are Sunnis in its uh, ranks in its own ways. But it did in the in the 2010s, especially in the years following the Arab Spring, um, sectarianism, and actually even before the Arab Spring, in the years following the Iraq War, uh, in the first two decades of the 21st century, sectarianism became a very real, you know, as I said, reality in our region, and Soleimani and the Oats Force, unfortunately, have a big role of spreading it. Um, you know, and it's it's always both-sided, right? They're spreading it, and they're finding ISIS and Al-Qaeda who are spreading their own murderous anti-Shia uh, politics. Um, so this is it's also a, a story of that, uh, the story of uh, collapse of universalist revolutionary ideals to a, uh, to a sectarian quagmire. And what do you think was the most significant thing he, he left behind, like, well, that defined his legacy? If it was one thing, what would that be? It's a very good question because it's also a, you know, it's also a legacy that's very much under attack, um, you know, by the people of the region, actually, partly. I think his most important legacy was for Iran to be able to have a united, or at least coordinated um, political and military front comprom comprising of many different Arab nations. Um, more particularly, the depth of Iraq is really sort of it, his, his life achievement in a, in a sense that he was able to organize um, pro-forces in Iraq that are very much pro the regime in Iran. Um, and these forces continue to have an important role in, our, in Iraqi politics, and that really wouldn't have been possible without Soleimani. But at the same time, as I say, this, these are both legacies that are very much under threat. I, it's not hard to imagine. I think it's possible that in 10 years, you know, Iraq would have very little of um, of such forces and that the Iranian regime, even if it survives, would have to give up on this expensive project of uh, trying to have this coordinated national armies. Um, in fact, hey, 10 years, maybe in a few years. So in a way, Soleimani's story is really tragic, even um, even if you don't have the, you know, his, his killing in mind, is that it's tragic, uh, tragic for his own purposes, I mean, because he's, his main, the, the main man and and the main regime he served, Ayat Khamenei and the Islamic Republic, are both in deep crisis. And uh, um, very likely, I mean, Khamenei will die, and his own legacy is very likely to be unraveled. So it's very likely that Soleimani's life would ultimately, from the perspective of years later, be seen as that of a defeated project. Mm. And how do you think is this? assassination uh, or even for that question why do you think it was assassinated what do you think led to that decision being taken you know it's a very good question it's much easier to ask like, what I think about that assassination or what the consequences but you know why did Donald Trump decide to do that that's a very good question and I mean I think ultimately only Donald Trump can answer that um, but um, I think the answer is that Trump wanted some 
confronts, basically his, it fits with his policy towards Iran when you see. His policy was basically an aggressive brinksmanship aimed, in my opinion, not ultimately at overthrowing of the regime, which is not what Trump wanted, but at making a deal with it. Um, you know, he wanted to make a deal with the regime. His idea was, if you really hit hard against these guys, if you go where nobody else would, um, i.e. Soleimani, um, then maybe you can achieve what you want with them. Um, and, you know, it didn't work. In a very real sense, it didn't work. Although, had Trump got a second term, if anybody's guessed what would have happened, it's not impossible that he would have been able to make a deal with the regime, frankly, because they really were under a lot of pressure. So it was part of his maximum pressure that he would go where nobody else would, um, and he would kill this guy. You know, Soleimani had, of course, I mean, it wasn't hard to to assassinate him for any U.S. president before that. They really wanted to, I mean, you know, because he was moved so much, and it surely wasn't that hard to get his coordinates. Uh, but they went out of their way not to do that. I mean, in fact, under George W. Bush, when they were killing others, like Ahmad Mogni, I believe, and I believe Mogni was in, in Bush's time, um, they kind of, that, they were, they, they wanted to make sure they only hit Mogni when Soleimani is not there. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, so that, so that's basically, they had been a policy of trying to avoid it. And in fact, the U.S. kind of talked and negotiated with him. Uh, many times under many different administrations, including George W. Bush, I mean, they negotiated with him later on. Petros, I mean, oh, sort of indirectly, but they negotiated with him um, through through Iraq, uh, through other channels in Geneva. They negotiated with him. So the idea that you would go and kill him was really just um, outside the imagination of outside sort of possibility. Um, but Trump did it because that's what. That's who Trump is. He wanted to go beyond uh, beyond what was big probable before. Yeah. And what what do you think this assassination has brought about? Did it change Iran's regional ambitions, the the geopolitical landscape of the Middle East? What do you what do you make of it? The aftermath. Yeah, the Soleimani Soleimani's shoes have not been filled. His, his successor, Ismail Ani, is just a different kind of cat, as 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 we say. You know, he is, you know, he, he is, um, he's not as charismatic. He doesn't speak Arabic properly. Is it basically Holtz Force? Don't even haven't even tried. So Ismail Ani is the commander of the Holtz Force, the external operations being of the RGC. But they haven't even. They know you cannot have another Soleimani, so they're not even trying to have another Soleimani. So the, the first consequence is that, yes, Iran personal does matter. And Iran lost, the Iranian regime lost one of its most important figures uh, who was able to play an unparalleled role in um, in organizing these militias in the region. Um, it's also true that there were tons of other factors that led to this uh, challenging of these militias in the region, which is which it includes, you know, the popular movements in Iraq and Lebanon in 2019, um, shifts in Iraqi politics, his determination in, for Iraqi sovereignty that I think is really strong there. Um, and, you know, Iraq has gone through a lot, a lot in the last uh, two years. I mean, it's changed prime ministers a few times. Um, it has seen rise and fall of Muqtad al It has its, you know, that, that's a book in itself, right? Um, but so the, the immediate consequence is, is that. Um, but ultimately, um, uh, Ultimately, 
you know, as I said, it, it's not just the killing of Soleimani, but the other events that have really challenged the Iranian regime. Also, the domestic, of course, uh, we have a revolutionary movement since last year against the regime and and, um, and many other factors. Um, and and you know, ultimately, we should also remember that it was a very difficult, it was a very dangerous decision in many ways, and it could have really left something bigger than it did. Um, and uh, you know, the fact that it didn't doesn't, doesn't mean that it was impossible. I mean, this is one thing that happened. You know, people say, oh, well, look, we killed Soleimani and, and the war that you said is going to happen didn't happen. It's a silly thing to say because, of course, wars don't happen all the time. Those who warn against Brinkmanship and Dangerous Decisions um, warn about the possibility that they might occur. And the possibility was always there. So it was, a, it was definitely a very dangerous decision, I would say, that could have led to much worse than it has. But in effect, it did degrade um, the capabilities of the Islamic Republic in the region. There is no question about that. Mm. And he was only the the Ahmed Mughni, I think, or the, the the guy that replaced him as the head of the Quds Force. Has he st- is he still in place? Uh, yes, it is Ismail Ghani. Mughni got killed uh, years before Soleimani. Yeah, Ismail Ghani is the one who replaced him, and. Uh, you know, but he doesn't have the qualities that Soleimani has. I and mean, Soleimani, as I say, he doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the relationship with the Arab world. Because Ismail Ghani's point was always Iran's relationship to the East. So Ismail Ghani is an Afghan-Pakistan expert. He is not an Arab world expert. And Arab world is where main uh, sort of presence of the world force is. Um, you know, so Ghani has really struggled. Now, he goes to Iraq a lot. He goes to Damascus a lot. But he has really struggled to kill Soleimani's shoes. And it was, it was always clear that, you know, that he cannot do it. I mean, uh, he was Soleimani's uh, second in command, right? So it was clear that he will be the next sports force leader. But um, yeah, he hasn't been able to be in those shoes. So as being a Quds Force commander, is it? Because uh, from what I could tell, it's a role for life. You just hold on to it till you you basically don't get shuffled or anything. No, that's not true necessarily. The first commander of the Quds Force after all did get shuffled, Ahmad Wahidi. Um, he is actually the interior minister now. Um, and Soleimani was, of course, Soleimani was different. Right? Soleimani was a special guy. So that's the, he, you are not going to put him out of his, that job. Um, no, but Ghani can absolutely get shuffled one of these days. He's second in command, um, and there are others. As Khamenei does shuffle. I mean, not, not very regularly, like not every couple of years. Um, but no, absolutely. It's very, it, it is entirely possible that Khamenei would at some point make some personal changes in the Abbas force. He, he does so with other, um, other forces as well. And of course, uh, Khamenei is going to die and they're, you know, he's not very young and, uh, there will be important changes then. And, and then that's anybody's guess as to what IRGC is going to do. Maybe they will expand the Abbas force at some point. Maybe they'll change it. Um, these are all possibilities. Yeah. Was the IRGC involved in the, uh... The suppression of the most recent Iranian uprising. Um, yes, IRGC is involved in. As I said, IRGC has a central role in controlling much of the Iranian armed forces. So this includes the police. This includes the riot forces. It definitely had a role in suppressing the uh, the protests in Iraq. What do you think is the what do you think threatens the IRGC long term? That's a good question. What do the, does it threaten them long term? I think what threatens them, perhaps ironically, is that after Khamenei is killing, the power might be just 
thrown into their lap, so to speak. And they're not a united organization. They don't have a, you know, they without Khamenei, it's hard to imagine what would happen. To them. I mean, I think that's the question. Because Khamenei, as I said, has really orchestrated power in Iran. But without him, they don't have a strong figurehead. You know, Salami, this guy who is currently the, the, the head of them, um, you know, he's, a, he's just a, you know, he's a time server. He's not a serious sort of charismatic figure. He's not, he's, he's not leadership material. So I think that would be the real challenge. I think after death of Khamenei is the real challenge uh, for the IRGC to see what's going to be going to be their future. All right. And finally, why should people buy the, your book? <laughs> well, number one, uh, look, number one, um, you know, buying an author's book is the best thing you can do to support the author and, and to support the um, the very practice of having books. If you like to, if you like having books about something, books are you know hard to produce. But the least you can do is, is to buy them. So that would you know, it's important for it's it's sort of important support. Um, and I think uh, if you want to know more about what we talked about today. Uh, or if you just want a story that I mean, I hope I've, I have tried to make the story that that anyone could follow of the uh, you know of the game with sort of interlocking questions of how a uh, how some how a boy from margins of Iranian society could rise to become this uh, big operative that would be on the cover of Newsweek. Like, how do you go? You know, how do you go from margins of Iran to cover of Newsweek and and cover stories in New Yorker, or just biggest stories in New Yorker? Um, and the other question is, how did this this uh, this Islamic Republic? How did it come to do what it does in the region? Um, and uh, you know, you hear every time in the news, the strongest uh, man in the world, you know, the U.S. president, uh, for years has spoken about you know, Iran's role in the region. How did Iran come to have this role in the region that causes so much um, anguish in the region and beyond? So. That's like these are things, some of the things that might make the book worth reading. Definitely. It is indeed a fascinating book. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Raj. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, uh, very much for having me. And my second book uh, is coming soon about Iran's uh, uh, new movement and the revolution. And uh, yeah, I hope we can talk about that. Yeah, definitely. And I'll leave the link in the description to everyone. They should buy it. Thank you.